You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to another week here at The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, here today, early in the morning. So you guys have something out this week, May 14th. I really apologize. I know I promised you guys another Foreign Policy Friday last week. But believe it or not, not believe it or not, my voice was still kind of messed up, and it still is messed up. Uh, so it was difficult. I also was busy with this ridiculous eye doctor appointment, which, if I have time today, I want to get into that and how it embodies what's wrong with our healthcare system in every sense of the word. But lots going on this week. A lot, a lot of stuff. Um, I don't even know where to begin. Other than to say, I was enjoying my Mother's Day, you know, and I hope you you guys enjoyed it as well. I was dealing with the kids; that was part of the deal <laughs> that I have to take care of the kids in the morning, so uh, you know, my wife could enjoy her Mother's Day. You know, actually not being the full time mother for one Sunday, which she usually is. You know, this is not a fifty fifty proposition here. This is more like an eighty twenty situation where she carries the bulk of the of the work. And you know, it, it just in this country we celebrate Mother's Day obviously more than Father's Day. Um, kids need a mother; they just do. That's the reality. They need both parents, and that's for sure. Uh, but clearly, when the kids are are younger, it really is more of a mother's thing, which is what feminists don't get with this whole business that there's no difference between men and women. And, you know, we need to encourage women to work just as early and often in their careers across the board with no exceptions as men. Well, you know, you're going to have a destroyed civilization, which we kind of do. But anyway, didn't mean to digress there. So I was enjoying the day off. And I see this tweet from Donald Trump early Sunday morning. And, well, actually, it was a a Facebook. And what is it? Remember that bill we talked about last week? And we have an article up, I'll list in show notes, about a new jailbreak piece of legislation pushed by jailbreak Jared Kushner, jailbreak Jared, passed almost unanimously out of the House Judiciary Committee, and now they're very close to putting it on the floor. They call it a prison reform effort. Prison reform. That's that's the new line here. So Trump tweets, this is a great bill. It's going to reduce crime, save costs. Congratulations. Congrats to, to Jared for pushing this. And what would hurt me so much was to think that this is the very essence of Trump's campaign. One, one issue for which Trump has consistently been righteous on, I, I would argue better than anyone else, is criminal justice, crime. Noting that we need to be tougher on crime, not more lenient. Yet he is now supporting a bill that's not prison reform. I love that prison reform. What about free market health care reform? What about... American sovereignty-driven immigration reform. What about judicial reform? But no, no, we hear prison reform. 
There is no greater lobby, no lobby with more power that is more diversified than this jailbreak agenda. And it's at least as powerful as the open borders lobby, except unlike with open borders, where a big part of our movement we've grown at least over the last five years to combat it, there is nobody left. I'm pretty much the last man standing on this. But Trump was was solid on this, and now he's supporting this nonsense. Why am I starting off with this today as we enter a new week with farm bill, tons of stuff on immigration, Hezbollah at our border? We're going to talk about that more. I was thinking of Newton's laws of motion and how it applies to politics. Now, obviously, the first law of, of motion is that every body persists in its state of being at rest or of moving uniformly straightforward except insofar as it is compelled to change its state by force and press. And if you mixed with, with this the third law of motion, where more or less we say that everything has an equal and opposing force in order to stay in its state of being, so you need at least an equal and opposing force for something to stay in equilibrium, much less to move forward. To move forward, you need an external force, which is stronger. That's politics in a nutshell, folks. We have one side that's indefatigable. One side that's shameless. One side that's ubiquitous. One side that is as fierce as possible. They leave nothing on the table in pursuit of their agenda. They'll never miss an opportunity. Every area of politics, of culture, of media, even things that you don't think of in our world, they will imbue upon it every facet of their agenda, fiscal, social, decivilization, as it pertains to foreign policy, you name it. They'll weave their agenda into the fabric of our culture and society. On the other side, forget forget about the Republican Party. You know, I mean, you apply Newton's laws of motions to a motion to uh, Democrats and Republicans. It's yeah, I mean, it's obvious. All the mass and velocity is with is with one side. You know, um, that's that, that that that's a no brainer. You guys know that by now, that the Republican Party is a joke of a party. You know, but uh, you know that, that that's the thing. The, the, the second law of 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 Newton's laws of motion states that the rate of change of momentum of a body is directly proportional to the force applied. Well, where's the momentum? Where's the direction of our country? It's all commensurate with the force applied. The force is on one side, but I'm here to tell you, it's not just the Republican Party. The entire conservative movement is bankrupt. So. Not only don't we have a conservative movement using all of its force, every opportunity, harnessing every, every opening to push our agenda on the important issues. We don't have that. But on half of the most fundamental issues of our time, we have our biggest moneyed interests and some of our biggest names promoting force on the other side of the equation. And you're seeing this with jailbreak. Jim DeMint is now roped into this. Ken Cuccinelli, friend, uh, friends of mine, are roped into this. 
They don't study the issue in particular. They're roped into this general sense of overcriminalization. There's too much criminalization. I'm like, well, uh, what are you applying it to? Are you applying it to regulatory stuff? That's not what they're addressing. That's not where the Soros agenda is coming from. That's not where it's headed. And you're not getting any of that even as a compromise for the violent crime, you know, not let's just say not white-collar regulatory stuff. And I'm not saying all white-collar crime is BS and shouldn't be punished, but I'm just saying it's not that stuff they're addressing. But they've latched onto this false notion there's too many people in prison, even though ironically – it's a delayed reaction. The prison population peaked 10 years ago. Now it's at 1996 levels. And crime is going up. Bending the 23-year-long trajectory of crime going down. At a time when we need stricter sentencing in most cases. We have a drug crisis that's not marijuana. It's fentanyl and heroin or fentanyl-laced cocaine now. And instead, they have a bill that will allow the attorney general, and picture when you have a Democrat attorney general, to basically lop off a third of sentences. All built on a lie. This jailbreak movement is the core of the decivilization agenda. It's the core of creating this left-wing Antifa-style army. That's going to be their army in America they're foot soldiers when they let these people out of jail. Oh, and by the way, notice that concurrently, they have a successful agenda to have felons vote, which is where this is all headed. The same reason why they're all pushing amnesty for illegals and open borders. It's all about votes. But you have our side and our leaders promoting it, doing everything they can. You know, I live here in the suburbs of Baltimore, and I see firsthand there's nothing new about what they're proposing. The juvenile leniencies, the extra time served, the good time credits, the job training programs that in turn for enrolling, you get time off. We have it all in Maryland, and it's a cesspool. You know, one of the things I I resent, and and, and Trump was parroting this, and such a shame because he's so good on the issue, but he has a stupid son-in-law pushing this. So the, 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 one of the reasons that ha- that they're able to so successfully rope in a lot of conservatives, they say too much money spent on prisons. You know, it's like saying too much money on, on, on a border wall, too much money on having a front door in your home. I got news for you. The cost of crime, and you're seeing it in California, California, much like with immigration, Again, immigration and jailbreak are very parallel in terms of the arguments being used to push, push both of them, the lobbies behind them, the straw man arguments behind them, and the ultimate goal. But both of them, California has been the canary in the coal mine. So California passed Prop 47 a couple of years ago, reducing penalties retroactively both for drug and property crimes. It led to the release of this was already two years ago. It was 30,000 criminals, probably more, more, more so by now. California wound up spending $2.2 billion more on prison costs per year. And obviously, at the same time, violent crimes spiked 13%. Property crimes rose 9.2%. In California's major city, cities, 
Sorry about that. I that, I know that was Freudian. I, I don't use that word, but that just came out. Um, shoplifting is now rampant in the Golden State. And remember, state convicts, on average, are less violent than those in the federal prisons that are the subject of this jailbreak bill going through the House and Senate. Now, Tom Cotton is committed to stopping this in the Senate. A friend of mine in the House said he got a commitment it won't come up at least this week. But think about that. The House Judiciary Committee has passed five, six solid bills, sometimes two successive Congresses, that have languished for three years. Asylum reform, Davis-Oliver bill, sanctuary cities, all speaking to the core issues, and they will not receive a House floor vote. But this jailbreak bill, which is one of the keystones of the Antifa left-wing agenda, not, not even the... The regular Democrats, the the far, far left, we have the right championing in this country. I'll tell you this, folks. The Coke money, the Cokes are a cancer on conservatives. You know, it's funny. You never benefit from the areas where they're so-called good, where they're on our side. I'm not seeing this bang-up movement and momentum and success in pushing free market health care reforms. In fighting the farm bill. Yeah, they'll officially oppose it. But where I do see them being successful is joining with the left on jailbreak, amnesty, in the case of the Kochs, transgenderism, homosexual agenda, pro-Iran, you name it, anti-Israel. They're they're into an anti-Israel agenda as well. And it's a shame. I don't mean to be down today. Part of why I'm down is because I was up the last couple weeks with Trump has been awesome. On foreign policy... Not everything I'd want, but it's gradually moving in the right direction with the right personnel. Iran has been humiliated beyond belief the last couple of weeks between Trump and Netanyahu. Obviously, you have this week the big ceremony moving the Jerusalem embassy. I mean the, the American-Israeli embassy to, to Jerusalem. You know, and, and by the way, this is the 51st anniversary of Jerusalem Day when – you know, through God's providence, Jerusalem was unified and restored to, to Jewish control over uh, over the terrorists. So there's a lot of good things going on, but that's my point. We don't have a movement harnessing those things and like, oh my, oh man, now we're we have Iran on on defense. Let's go after the border Hezbollah drug cartel um, sphere of this, which is really where they have us around the neck. That's really their leverage. No, there's no talk about that. We have conservatives writing op-eds, DeMint and Cuccinelli pushing jailbreak. Lovely. Lovely. Unbelievable. But anyway, going back to this jailbreak business, they talk about, oh, the cost of incarceration. I'm sure you guys see this in some of your neighborhoods, but the cost of property crimes. When you have these type of Criminal justice laws, they all go uncompensated. So, obviously, incarceration costs have grown with increase in prison population, which is already on a downward trajectory. But how much money have we saved by actualizing the two-decade-long decline in crime? Corresponding with that same time period of, you know, Increase incarceration. 
couple of years ago, I saw an article from Jeffrey Sedgwick. He's he's a former director of the um, Bureau of uh, what do you call it? Bureau of Justice Justice Statistics out of DOJ. He wrote in the Washington Post in 2008, I believe it was, yeah, maybe it was 2008. It was a while ago. Um, you know, again, this was at the peak of incarceration. The cost of new crimes, he said the most conservative estimate is $17 billion a year in America. And that's just the immediate cost. That's the direct cost. You know, that this leaves out you know, costs that victims struggle to deal with all the time. But it's it's unbelievable. And what's amazing is every every year in April, and it, we just passed this. You have you have um I forgot which week it is National Crime Victims Rights Week, and Congress usually passes a resolution that includes this finding from Sedgwick. They actually you know seventeen billion cost a year of uncompensated crime. So that that's the true cost. Now I have a friend of mine here. He he worked in the telecom industry and he was laid off and he's really he's really struggled. He worked for Bally Fitness, which you know went up went, went belly up, and he's just really struggled the last couple of years finding a, a decent paying job. And you know he's got he's a little older than me, so his kids are older. The expenses are more. I really feel bad for him. And. You know, he he this family he has he has a car and he had this kind of junky minivan. It was a Dodge or something. I mean, it wasn't a Toyota or Honda. It's a real junky minivan. But you know, it worked for him. One night, and this was a couple months ago at the peak of the Baltimore crime wave, or at least the latest one, it it was stolen right in front of his home. Right in front of his home, middle of the night. And it was it wound up being one of these 18, 19 year old druggies that's on the streets because of the laws we have here, which we now want to codify on the federal level. And, you know, he just crashed it at some point and totaled it a couple days later, and that's how they found it. He's not covered. You know, that thing was worthless. On the market, it was a worthless piece of junk, but it served him well. He had to go out and buy a new, a totally new car, and he really didn't have the money for it. Who's going to be the voice for the forgotten victims? That's what I want to know. I want to know who is going to be the voice of the forgotten victims. Why does Jared Kushner get to determine this? Who appointed that clown? I'm telling you guys, Trump's been moving in a good direction. The personnel in general has been moving in a good direction. The single biggest problem we've had is Jared and Ivanka. These stupid bimbos that cosmet- just a bunch of cosmopolitan leftists from New York know nothing about policy. It's all being driven from the fact that his father served time in prison because his father was a big crook. And his father is a big Democrat donor, part of the corrupt New Jersey Democrat cartel. So... Because his father was a crook, now we have to suffer with jailbreak. And again, most of these people that will get out aren't even white-collar crimes. I'm not saying you know white-collar crimes should go unpunished. I'm just saying they are going to be the violent dudes. But th- this is what's so disturbing. Prison costs in California have skyrocketed. They, they, they did this already. 
when you pursue reduction in prison population at the expense of public safety, you get neither. Because you'll wind up paying more in the cost of the crime. But this is what it is on the right. How many people could we let out of prison? Too many people in prison. It's like saying, I'm waiting to turn onto a busy street, make a left turn. Another Freudian slip there, a left turn, which is what our movement's been making. And the cars keep coming. You're like, I've waited long enough. I'm going. Well, you can't go. Too many people in prison. I got news for you, folks. I got news for you. To the extent there were nonviolent people in prison, states have let them out the last 10 years because they've succeeded in the jailbreak movement. Obama let out 2,000 drug dealers. Many of them had firearms convictions and were arrested originally for bigger crimes, but they were pled down, which, by the way, is a very big factor in this. A lot of times they'll tell you about what they're convicted on. What you don't understand is this. With the drug crimes, part of why the the drug laws were successful, not in stopping drugs so much, but in reducing general crime is because most of these people are the ones who do all the crime. But it's so hard to land a conviction. We don't have enough people in prison. For every one person you could tell me and show me that doesn't belong in there, I could show you 10 people that belong in there and not there, including murderers, much less lesser crimes that are still very destructive. The knockout stuff, the assault that you have in the streets of Baltimore and places like that, car theft, all goes unsolved. But murderers are, are like go left and right. You know, a while back, um, this is last year, and I, I talked about it at the time, so California passed SB 394 uh, to reopen sentencing for juveniles convicted of murder and serving life in prison without parole. Now, the courts are already doing jailbreak on this. And, and by the way, that's another thing. You have these so-called conservatives from the Heritage Foundation, all these places. Some, some of them are friends of mine. You know, we need to give more discretion to the judges. That's what judges are for. No mandatory minimums. Have you forgotten? And most of these guys are twice my age. They lived through it. The reason why Reagan pushed these things in the 80s is because we had retarded judges letting them out. And let me tell you something. The judges back then looked like Clarence Thomas compared to the judges now. They're already having a field day with it even before we passed these laws. But anyway, this SB 394... So those who already served 25 years could be eligible for parole with a new hearing. And as you can imagine, these are the worst offenders who have only one outcome if let out on the streets. So at the time, um, it was interesting. So this, this woman reached out to me, Emily Collins. She is the cousin of Eric Engberston, or Engberston, I think, with an I, lived in Calusa, California. 20 years ago, he was murdered by someone he thought was a friend, this guy Nathan Ramazzini. And she, she was mortified over this. This guy, Nathan Ramazzini, would be one of the people eligible to get out. You know, and they frantically begged the governor to veto the bill, but obviously Governor Brown, you know what he's like. 
And I was thinking to myself, who's going to speak up for people like Emily and her family? No one. And what bothers me is Trump promised to be that voice. He promised us he'd be that voice. The entire philosophy behind what, 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 what the pseudo-right has adopted is the McGovern-Dukakis approach to crime, where you focus is this zero-sum game of, of sympathy on, on the criminal. Well, you know, he has to sit there and reintegrate. What about the victims? It's the same thing with illegal immigrants. It's all about them. No one is standing for the average citizen. We now have both parties crying over illegal alien amnesty, but ignoring the drug trafficking and the terrorist smuggling crisis that it incentivized. We have both parties focusing the zero-sum game of compassion for waterboarding terrorists. Both parties doing that now. There was also another issue Trump was good on, and now Gina Haspel, the new CIA director, the nominee for CIA director, now she basically said, oh, it's immoral. I'll disobey orders. We have both parties crying over a drug crisis that they misdiagnosed as an opioid crisis. But they're empowering those responsible for it. All the fentanyl heroin dealers will be let out under this bill. At a time when we, we need, I agree with the president. We need the death penalty for the high level traffickers. You know how many people they're killing? Nobody is standing for the law-abiding taxpayer, the forgotten man who has no lobby, who has no voice in Washington, the family who simply wants to be kept safe from criminals, drug traffickers, illegal aliens, sanctuary cities, and terrorists. And it all ties together. Notice it all ties together. Yet we have our own side pushing this. Trump promised to be that voice. During his acceptance speech at the RNC, he lamented that, quote, the Obama administration's rollback of criminal enforcement reversed decades of progress in bringing down crime. But you know how Trump is. He doesn't read legislation. He doesn't read the summary. Whatever is put on his plate. Oh, that's a good bill. You know, and it works both ways. We can get him to sign on to good stuff. But we don't have a movement pushing the motion with the mass and the velocity to counter the current inertia. The inertia is all on one side. It's not with us. And we have our own movement pushing. You know, when do you ever find the left? When do you ever find one senator, one House member, one governor, one state legislator amongst the Democrats pushing a minor priority of the right, much less a major civilization-killing priority or, I mean, in, from the left-wing vantage point, civilization-killing priority of the right that will lead to more right-wing voters. Here you got Mike Lee, you got Cuccinelli, you got this guy, DeMid, sign on to it now. I'm literally, I'm literally the last man standing. I mean, Tom Cotton's been good on this. I just don't get it. I just don't get it. But this is the problem. This is Newton's law 
of political motion. The trajectory will always stay where it is unless we apply an equal and opposing force and greater force and greater mass with greater velocity. But how do you do that when the velocity of your own side is headed in the other direction? I just don't get it. And this is the thing. We could slaughter the Democrats, like I said last week, with an agenda of public safety and security and sovereignty. Tie it all in. Iran, Hezbollah, border, sanctuary cities, drug crisis, local crime. It all ties in together. MS-13... Instead, we have to spend our own time countering the mass motion velocity from our own side on immigration too. So many of you have followed this, this discharge petition. Basically, you have a group of now 18 Republicans signing the Democrat discharge petition. So real briefly, for those of you who have not followed – so you could force a vote on a piece of legislation in the House that's bottled up in committee if you get 218 members to sign a discharge petition to discharge it from the committee of jurisdiction and put it out on the floor. Now, usually the majority party won't let that happen because they won't let their members sign on to it. So at best, you can get every member of the minority, but that's not going to be 218. Now, as you all know, every single Democrat – is an open borders fanatic, and a number of Republicans are. So 18 have signed on to it. They're less than 10 away from getting this done. And let me tell you, it will pass, this this amnesty bill. Now, the problem here, you might say, well, hasn't leadership been fighting it? Leadership doesn't want it. Look, it's kind of a kabuki theater. I can't tell what leadership wants and doesn't want. Now, broadly, they you know, McCarthy, Ryan, McConnell, they sympathize with the open borders agenda. I don't think they particularly want this on their plate now. They, they don't really want to do much of anything potent, liberal or good. So I don't, I don't think they particularly want it. But let me just tell you this. Two members that have signed on are Elise Stefanik, from she's from upstate New York, and Mia Love from Salt Lake City. Mia Love. Those two members are leadership hacks. I cannot imagine they'd be signed on to it if leadership was that opposed to it. And by the way, isn't it interesting? Mia Love, to this day, a lot of oh, a black conservative. Oh, really? Actually, no, a leadership hack, open borders fanatic. But we have her from the state of Utah. Um, imagine a Democrat representative from downtown Baltimore, Boston, Philly, New York, or San Francisco signing on to, gosh, I don't know, uh, private social security accounts, free market health care. No, you don't have that. We have from our reddest states people pushing the most extreme, destructive, and consequential agenda items of the other side. How can we go on like this? And it's a shame because we could be focusing on a lot of other things. And this, by the way, ties in to the primaries. 
I mean, you see this every day with these lackluster candidates, even the ones that run broadly on our themes. They're they're not going to be with us. They're balloons in the wind. I mean, even a lot of my friends in Congress, I got to look behind my shoulder every day like, hey, hey, uh, Joe, are, are, are you still with me? <laughs> did, did I lose you? Are, are, are you sure you understand this bill? You're not going to take a bad vote in committee today. Much less push our issues. I have to worry about them promoting the other side's issues. So certainly when you have these aimless candidates come in here, you know how they're going to be. And that's 95% of these guys running. Which reminds me, next Tuesday, there's a major election in Texas. Texas has runoffs, so all those districts where people didn't get 50%, which is most of them, you're going to have a runoff. District 21, San Antonio uh, to Austin area, my buddy Chip Roy is running against this guy, Matt McCall. Now, I haven't said a bad word about him, but he was on Mark Levin's show, and we're going to post the audio in show notes. You know, Mark's very nice. I'm, I I haven't spoken to Mark on this issue, but I'm assuming McCall's campaign asked to be on the show, even though uh, Levin obviously endorsed Chip. But Levin was like, all right, fine, he could come on. And Levin asked him point blank, what have you done for conservatives in your life? You know, when have you fought for us? You should listen to it. It's painful to hear. There's nothing there. And again, this gets back to Newton's laws. This is his second law. F equals M times A. The net force on an object is what? It's mass times acceleration. You got to have a critical mass. I say this all the time. Oriented towards our goals. Then also... You actually have to have a vision and a direction, acceleration in this case. So in order for force to be equal to change in momentum, so basically, I'm sorry, force is equal to the change in momentum, which is the mass times velocity per the change in time. And you look at the left. Look at how much mass and velocity they put into an issue over such a short period of time. We went from every Republican and three-quarters of Democrats having to be tough on crime to within a few years, every Democrat and almost every Republican being weak on crime. They flooded the zone on this issue. And there's no counterforce. And by the way, Chip Roy, I could tell you, He's one guy that is he's going to put his life on the line for this issue. He's fought a lot of colleagues on it. He's against the jailbreak agenda, the Willie Horton El Chapo agenda, as well as also being solid. Uh, as you well know, his biggest issues are the debt, judicial reform, and free market health care. I want to get to health care. You know, President Trump gave a speech on Friday – about lowering drug prices. And you know, he he definitely did touch on some of the critical points the middlemen in healthcare, particularly the PBMs, the pharmacy uh I was going to say pharmacy bureaucrats, but pharmacy benefit managers, the PBMs that pursuant to a 1988 uh Medicare law, they have this safe harbor provision where basically they get kickbacks for uh, discounting drugs to 
you know, sell them to to consumer market on behalf of the drug makers. None of this is free market. Now he touched on it, but a lot of elements were missing. And there's one point that's missing from whatever everyone's discussion. The ultimate middleman is the insurance cartel propped up by the government. The reason why we have so you know, number one, Trump is right that obviously we have all the R and D in this country, and you know other countries benefit from it, but their governments basically subsidize it. Obviously, they pay for it with taxes through their nose, but it all comes from here. You know, the, the, this latest rage in the left wing culture is look at Finland's healthcare, how amazing it is. Yeah, a lot of R and D coming from there, <laughs> but. Part, part of the problem is, I say this all the time, there are aspects of our healthcare that's worse than Europe because we have the venture socialism. We have anywhere from $800 billion to $1.2 trillion, a third, an entire third of our healthcare expenditures siphoned off by these third-party bloodsuckers, the insurance cartel, the PBMs, the GPOs. Those are the ones that sell um, the medical devices to the providers, the hospitals. The entire hospital conglomerate uh, cartel. Obviously, all the medical bill-paying companies. That whole industry. It sucks off $800 billion to $1.2 trillion. So that's why everything's expensive. But ultimately, it boils down to the fact that we don't have single-payer in this country. When I say single-payer, I don't mean what you think it means. I mean consumer-to-provider. See, if the money ain't there, the money ain't there. They can't charge what's not there. Government props up this whole third-party, fourth-party business, which creates a market for a fifth party to referee between the third and fourth parties. That's literally how our healthcare system is, by the way. That's why it's more expensive here. And I wanted to illustrate this with a personal narrative. I told you guys earlier why... uh, I didn't get a chance to put out a podcast Friday when I intended to. So I was at an eye doctor's office. Now, it wasn't your typical eye doctor's office. What happened? Basically, my eyes are fine, thank God. I don't have any issues. And even in terms of my nearsightedness, I don't need a higher prescription. You know, they, they always told me, when you stop growing, Daniel, then your prescription will finally level off. Well, I stopped growing when I was uh, 15, <laughs> And uh, gosh, you know, my uh, my prescription pretty much deteriorated well into my late 20s. But, uh, you know, I, I haven't gotten glasses in ages. And I just need new frames because I've been doing more TV, more, you know, just appearing on more shows. And the frames are starting to get a little corroded and it shows up. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't care. And I can't stand contacts. I just I cannot get contacts in my eyes. I wish I could. I'd wear them, but I, I I just can't do it. It's kind of like the equivalent, the eye equivalent of a gag reflex, which I have that badly too. Um, maybe it's just kind of my uh, fiercely independent spirit. I can't have anything foreign on me in me. So anyway, uh, I need I need new glasses. Now, you're talking about a nothing burger. I don't need any medical procedure. I just need a freaking prescription, but I have it. Oh, whoops, there's a regulation, a government regulation that within 
that you need a prescription within five years to get glasses. So ideally, I should be able to go to any doctor, any not doctor, any eyeglass store, what do you call them, opticians, and pick out anything I want. But no, it's regulated. You got to get a prescription. So now I got to go and you know get an eye exam when I really don't need one just so I can get a prescription to walk in to an eyeglass store with. And by the way, I just I just want to go on a tangent for a minute. Um, you know, we talk a lot about drugs and and stuff like that. It's interesting that it, today's rage is legalizing marijuana, and people always ask me what I feel about it, and I tell them I'm for legalizing it under three conditions. Number one, inevitably, all these people are juiced up on on this stuff. All the criminals are. And they don't respond to normal police deterrence, which we saw in the whole Freddie Gray, you know, uh, Ferguson, all, all these kind of shootings that the, that the media blew up to Kingdom Come. So the police are for, they're put in an untenable position. So number one, the police could sh- shoot to kill. Okay, no complaining. So everyone could juice up, but if they act violent... Then you know, don't don't be surprised if you're sleeping with the fishies. That's number one. Number two, let's end all these expensive drug treatment programs. Okay, if we're gonna be libertarian, then let's be full libertarian. Don't make me pay for it. Okay, if it's gonna be this, look, people have the right to take what they want. So fine, then cut it out with this government. The, the the dumb government programs. And by the way, it's amazing how they're certain that OxyContin and Percocet. You know, the prescriptions are absolutely a gateway to heroin, but somehow marijuana is not. Interesting. They're, they're certain about it, even though marijuana is 100 times more potent than what it was you know, when your uh, parents were smoking it. So that's number two. Get rid of all these programs. And number three, and this is just to bring back my point here on healthcare. Why is it that it's only things that are associated with cultural rock gut that somehow there's a movement behind them to legalize? Why do I need a prescription for eyeglasses? That should that should be my business. If I want to mess up my eyes. I mean there's no reason for that. And I can go on the line and this ties into um a big part of the drug pricing, especially with generic drugs. There are too many things that are not over the counter. But no, the movement is only on something that is associated with cultural rock gut. So you want to be a libertarian with me? Let's be full libertarian. Anyway, I'm sorry for, for that tangent. But back to healthcare. So I, I have to go and get an, uh, in, uh, an eye doctor's appointment. So I was telling my wife to shop around because here's the problem. I don't have insurance. I'm, I'm on a health sharing ministry and I'm fine with that. You know, the stuff they don't cover, they don't cover, um, you know, eye exams, things like that. I'm fine with paying out of pocket. But here's the problem. Here's the problem we all face. You need insurance because everyone has it. You need Medicare because everyone has it. My dad was saying this, you know, he's he's been eligible for Medicare for a couple of years, but, you know, he still works and he gets his group plan from work. And he said, you know, he was saying the same thing that 
look, I don't believe in Medicare, but you have to have it because it because it exists. You're cut out. You have no bargaining power. So ideally, and the reason why ophthalmology is a perfect example of this is that nothing, nothing in an eye doctor's office should be covered by insurance, Medicare or Medicaid. Ideally, none of it should. There's nothing, I'm not talking about a really expensive eye surgery. You know, something, a catastrophic thing comes up. Nothing there is that expensive. If everyone would just pay as you go, an eye exam would be, a, yeah, I don't know, $30, $40. What is it already? It's not a big deal. Everyone would pay it. Heck, by now you'd have, without the regulations, but then without the subsidizations and the market distortion of the whole insurance industry created by government along with Medicare and Medicaid, the two tied together as we talk about often, So you would have all sorts of innovative ways. You could probably scan your eyes through some program. They already have that. It would be so cheap you could shop around. But nobody shops around because here's my insurance card. Here's my Medicare. Here's my Medicaid. So if someone wants to come and say, look, I want to pay out of pocket. So we heard that that will be $115. And it's like, really? I'm going to pay $115 for something I absolutely don't need? It's just because of some stupid regulation that I have to get a prescription rewritten and then go to an eyeglass store. But then here, here's another problem. Okay, so I'll bite the bullet and pay $115. But here's the problem. I'm already going to have to shell out a couple hundred dollars for the frames because that's another thing. Medicare and Medicaid and a lot of insurance covers eyeglasses, and there's nothing medical about that. It's ridiculous. There's nothing catastrophic. Nobody should be using insurance for that. And again, I'm not if if you, you know, in the, in the audience use it, I'm not criticizing you. If if it's there and you have access to it, it is what it is. If you don't have it, you'll get you'll get hosed. But I'm saying ideally the system shouldn't work that way and it and it would would never have naturally worked that way without Medicare, Medicaid, um and the insurance, all the all the laws, the HMO Act and then obviously the original sin of healthcare, the employer tax exclusion which created insurance as the owner of healthcare, which is really medical care. So, you know, not, not, not to drift too much into this, but, you know, between the two, what, I'm going to pay four or $500 all because of something cosmetic I don't even really need? That's ridiculous. So, like, if I'm going to have to shell out for the glasses, I'm not going to pay $150 for this dumb eye exam that I don't even need. Just write me the prescription. I know what it is. So my wife shopped around and found a place kind of in the hood that was going to do it for 50 bucks. All right. Now, you can imagine, because no one else shops around, this is the only type of place you can get shopping around. So I go there. It's needless to say it's an experience. So I went on Friday. And first of all, while I was there, all of a sudden this guy comes in off the street. Is like, can you give me something to eat? Money for something to eat? You know, sticks his hand out for something to eat. And problem is, so there's, let's say there's 10, 15 people in there. For some odd reason, he only comes up to me. He literally like walked in almost like he saw me. He was targeting me. I, I, I don't get it. I guess I look different than everyone else there. 
And I was sitting down against the wall and he was like, you know, kind of a tall guy in front of me. And I just, you know, <laughs> I had to pay the ransom because I was in a very vulnerable position. Normally, I'm, if, if I ever see a threat on the street, you know, this is your, your uh, sixth sense you uh, pick up growing up in Baltimore. I, uh, I'm always, I always position myself strategically that I can block and tackle. Um, but here I was just in a pretty vulnerable, vulnerable position. I was just scared if I said no, like who knows what. So I gave him a dollar. Um, anyway, I'm waiting and waiting and waiting and it's 30 minutes past the appointment time. And I go up to the, the secretary and I say, Hey, uh, you know, I got to go soon. Is there, you know, do you, do you, do you know how long the the the, the line is? There's like you're the next person. Ten minutes later, she said you're the next person, and then I see what I think is the doctor come out and take someone else, and it's finally it's an hour past my time, and I'm like, what the heck? And she said, I don't know what to tell you. So I I said, look, I got to go. Goodbye. So that's it. I wasted you know between that and the driving, I wasted an hour and a half there, and I got nothing. Now I got to make another appointment somewhere. And it just bothered me because it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. Glasses and an eye doctor, there's nothing there that's expensive. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But because everyone has to be paid for free, everyone has to get free stuff, we have to get hosed. Rather than everyone paying a fair amount, And you shop around and you have innovation. We don't have that. Same thing with drugs. Oh, I have amoxicillin. Here's my insurance card. Here's my Medicare, my Medicaid. If you didn't have that, if government didn't provide this artificial pool of money, you wouldn't have anything. They wouldn't be able to gouge you. So this is the problem with healthcare. And it's so sad that we have no narrative you know, it, it, it's so evident that there's no narrative on the other side that um, you know, there's a candidate where I am in the legislative district over running for state house, state rep, um, and she has all these big obnoxious signs out. So I, I looked up her website, big liberal, obviously, in this area, and I looked under healthcare. She says, the, the way to solve it is we need to take care of pre-existing conditions. <laughs> We're talking about Maryland, six years into Obamacare. Maryland, I don't, I don't know if you guys saw the news. So my premiums already tripled by last year when I went to uh, health sharing ministry. This year, Blue Cross of Maryland announced a 95% increase on top of that because of guaranteed issue and community rating. And she she's able to get away with running on, we need uh, pre-existing conditions uh, taken care of. But they're able to get away with it because we don't have a party with a competing narrative. And by the way, Chip Roy is your guy on this issue. He's a gem on this issue. But anyway, that's where we are. Kind of losing my voice here, but watch out for the farm bill. I'm going to have a piece on that. Pure piece of garbage. $870 billion bill makes no significant reforms. The one reform it makes, it countermands it with another bed provision. In other words, that is a tiny percentage of the population of food stamp recipients that it subjects to work requirements, but they're very weak. States could waive them, and then it creates an entire new program for job training 
that they have to go to in order to get this. And the program the government creates is, is just as expensive as the savings that they get from people, you know, being off of it on the, on the, you know, work, uh, programs. So, uh, it's it just pure garbage. And then all the Stalinist price fixing, um, government agriculture programs. Um, and, and my fear is that, you know, the house is going to bring up this rescissions bill, Trump's rescissions bill to cut 15 billion to take 15 billion back and you don't need uh or it's not subject to the filibuster in the senate but the reality is the senate's not going to bring it up anyway we know that already but mccarthy is going to look like a hero he'll bring it up knowing that it won't pass the senate and then pass the farm bill which is 10 times worse than what the rescissions bill is good uh, because the rescissions bill most of it's phony money I think CBO just scored it. It's really $1.3 billion in savings instead of $15.6 billion. It's barely anything. And again, it's not going to pass the Senate. But, oh, go take a look at that. Anyway, my point here today is there's a lot you could learn from Newton's laws of physics. There are mutable laws, gravity, inertia. It applies to sociology and, and, and public policy and politics and culture as well. There's a reason we are where we are. It's the same reason we're going to continue to be where we are until and unless we create a critical mass with a velocity behind it that's first equal and opposing and then eventually overwhelms the existing inertia. It's not going to happen on its own. We have to break out of this because on its own, Kind of like, this is not Newton, but um, you know, the smaller object gets pulled into the gravitational force of the larger object. That's all where the left is. You're seeing it on the crime issue. And the reason why I'm focusing so much on that, because that was a bedrock issue. That's what it meant to be a Republican when I was growing up. And we're not just modifying one or two targeted things. Carte Blanche throwing out the entire philosophy and adopting the Michael Dukakis philosophy on crime. Actually, more liberal than he imagined. You think you're going to elect good people? I'm just telling you, they're going to get sucked in. And that's the thing. Trump was solid on this issue, and he's getting sucked in. So this is going to be a busy week. I'm going to have a lot more on health care. I'm going to try to get into the drug pricing, the farm bill. A lot more on immigration. Um, I'm going to promote my buddy Louis Gohmert's bill. Louis Gohmert, I want you guys to jot this down and call your members of Congress. And you know what? We'll we'll even link to this in show notes. Louis Gohmert, finally, uh, finally a person in Congress introduced my bill, HR fifty six forty eight, strips all lower courts of jurisdiction over anything dealing with immigration, naturalization, refugee status, asylum, you name it, anything related to immigration. Anything involving a claim of a legal right to enter or remain in the United States. Perfectly written. So, H.R. 5648. Call your members of Congress. Email the White House. Call your conservative groups and make sure they're on it. We're also hopefully going to have some guests on this week to discuss Hezbollah at our border and their work with the drug cartels. And the infiltration into our country of all sorts of Shiite and Sunni terrorists. We're going to focus on what's important. 
like I said, the safety, security, sovereignty, healthcare, the judiciary, these are where the issues are at. These are the issues for which we must amass a critical mass with velocity and momentum to create our own force. I don't know what that looks like yet, but I know what we're doing is not working and I know we need it. And I'm going to keep pointing out the direction where we could head and all my ideas. But look, I'm still struggling. I need your help. Email me as always. Tweet me at armconservative. God bless y'all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.